Have you ever lost something? All the time, right? And I mean, I mean, this is, and you've just been searching and searching for it, looking over everything, turning over everything, and to realize that you had it with you the whole time. Yeah, if you haven't had that experience, you will. This is inevitable. I mean, perhaps you've been searching for your car keys and through every jacket, through every room in the house to realize that you actually had it in your pocket the whole time. Or perhaps you've been looking for your glasses. And you're like, where have I put my glasses? And to realize, like, someone tell you, hey, they're on your head? I, I just recently have been, uh, I, I put things in the same place all the time so I don't have to remember where I put them. Though I just know by habit this is where I put the things. Recently, I've decided to change where I put my wallet. This has confused me to no end. I, I constantly now searching for my wallet because now I've put it in a place where I've not expected it, even though it's my new place that I told myself this is where I'm putting it. Or perhaps you've looked for your cell phone. I'm, I'm constantly doing the, the three checks, right? Keys, wallet, cell phone. I'm like, you know, boom, boom, boom. And then I, sometimes in the car, I'm driving, keys, wallet, where's my cell phone? Oh, I gave it to my child in the back to play a game. Constantly. We are people that are constantly searching, always believing that we have lost something or that we need something. We're never content. We're never satisfied. We are people that are constantly lost and constantly searching, never realizing that we have all that we need. Jesus is always with us. And he's always right in front of us. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus, who is always with us and always right in front of us, he is looking for us. Well, he's found us. And he's probably waving his arms and saying, hey, I'm right here. Stop looking. Stop searching. You have all that you need. In this passage this morning, Jesus is attending, his disciples are attending another feast. You know, they were just up north. Now they're down uh, in the south in Jerusalem. They're, they're, it's a holiday. It's a feast. It doesn't say what feast it is. But we know, right, it's, a, it's a, a city, so it's normally crowded. Now it's extra crowded because at feast days, people would have gone to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts or the holidays. So there's extra people. There's a buzz in the city. And he comes to the pool of Bethesda, a place where physically disabled people, and we'll talk more about that next week, come and gather around this natural pool, this natural spring, and the superstition and belief around this pool is that whenever the water stirs, which was probably stirred by, it's a natural spring, and so whether the wind blows about it, or, but the superstition that the angel of the Lord moved the waters and whoever was first to the water would be healed. We don't know if this was true or not, but we know this was the superstition and this was the belief. Here's the thing, we talked about this last week. When we are physically unwell, when we are in pain, we become prisoners to that pain. We become prisoners to our circumstances and we become prisoners to our moment. And we will do anything. We will search up and down to find relief and to find healing. I know I'm that way and I think you're that way too. 
Whenever we're in physical pain, whether it's also emotional pain or maybe spiritual pain, all we want is relief. In John 5, 3 through 5, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So now you begin to imagine the scene. There's a multitude. We don't know how big. We just know a multitude means a large number. It's crowded. Gathered around this pool, waiting for their lotto ticket to hit. Just hoping for a moment that the pool will stir, that they be the first ones, that they might even be healed, that their physical ailment be given relief. And then we're told this one man has been an invalid for 38 years. Now you think, well, I mean, that's a long time. But like, okay, 38 years. The 38 years, that's a lot longer than most people lived back in that day. That is a long time to be in that place. And he's probably been gathering around this pool for approximately that length of time as well, waiting and hoping to be healed, waiting for a breeze and a disturbance, waiting for the, the waters to move, and waiting for him to be the first one. Remember, he's an invalid. He needs help to get into that pool. And then we get verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, this seems quite like an unnecessary question that Jesus asks. And it seems a little dull, and it seems a little insensitive by Jesus. Do you want to be healed? I mean, why else would the guy be there? For 38 years. This is kind of how Jesus operates, though. He often states elliptical questions, hard-to-understand questions. I mean, it's a question beyond the question. Do you want to be healed? It's, it's kind of the same way where he offers the woman at the well, hey, do you want water that you will drink and never be thirsty again? I'm like, what kind of question is that? Why wouldn't I want that water? Or would you want food that you could eat and you always be satisfied? Jesus offers these kind of things all the time, these hard-to-understand questions, these elliptical questions. And he asks this do you want to be healed? The answer, of course, is yes. Our physical ailments, our temporary circumstances, our moments that we're in. But here's the thing. All of those moments, our pain, whether it's spiritual, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, and our spiritual blindness often confuse us and blind us to what we actually need to be healed from. And so when he asks this man, do you want to be healed? Do you think Jesus is really concerned about the physical state of this man? Yes, in part. But he knows that there are much bigger things than physical ailments in this world. He knows that there's, much, there's nothing more important than physical death in this world. So he asks them, do you want to be healed? I think we ask our question, ourselves that question. We would say, yes, we want to be healed. But I think Jesus would probably ask, do you actually know what you need to be healed from? 
In verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Basically, his response is, of course, Jesus. Of course. This is why I've been sitting here for 38 years. I mean, there's a little snark in this response. And rightfully so. The reality in those years, those 38 years, this ailment has changed him. Although he sits around this pool hoping to be healed, hoping to be first, the reality is he has no hope. And he acknowledges that to Jesus. Of course I want to be healed. But there's no chance for me to get into that pool. There's no chance for me to be first. And you begin to think, well, why are you around this pool anyway? If he has no hope, he's defeated. He knows getting into the pool is a pipe dream. That healing doesn't really exist. He's become a prisoner to his circumstance, to his moment, and to his reality. We can think of the Israelites enslaved in Egypt for 500 years. They are in prison to their circumstance and their moment. It's not just the slavery itself. Freedom doesn't exist for them. And we, if you want to define freedom, there's lots of ways we can define it, but one of the ways freedom would be equally healing from your oppression. You can think of lots of ways that could be in physical oppression or spiritual oppression or emotional oppression, but freedom would be healing from that whatever is oppressing you. And the Israelites have been oppressed for 500 years. Generation after generation, they would understand what freedom is. Freedom is a fantasy. A fantasy that has been wiped out and beaten out of them. A hope that has been vanished. And they have learned to adapt and adopt the life that they have been given. Slavery has become their freedom. It has become their way of life. You can actually begin to understand how slavery in any form dehumanizes people. Because it takes away the understanding of what freedom is. What we're created to be who we're created to be, and who we're created by. You see, the Israelites in, in Egypt, if their circumstances have become their reality, they can't even imagine healing. So much so, even when they are freed by Moses. Moses suggested, like, yeah, whatever. Then God actually miraculously frees them. And what do we, happens? They begin to grumble in their freedom. Because that wasn't freedom for them. Their freedom was their oppression. They were comfortable in their oppression. And they continued to grumble in the wilderness for 38 plus years. They don't know how to live in freedom. We don't often know how to live in freedom or in healing. We become enslaved into our hopelessness. They can't even imagine, they couldn't even imagine a life beyond their circumstance and their moment. And this is the reality as, as, as humans. We bed down 
to our circumstances. And what I mean by bed down is we lie down, we accept it, we just hunker down into it, and this is our comfort zone. Like we have no expectation that anything will be different, anything will change. And so this, we will accept it, and we bed down, and we lie in it, and we give up, and we have no hope. Worse than that, this is what we do. We bed down to sin. We begin to accept our sin as normal and okay and it's just reality and even if we believe in the freedom of it, like, listen, I'm a sinner, I'm going to sin, so I'm just going to live in it. And we bed down into it. And Jesus responds to this invalid who has bed down to his circumstances, bed down to his hopelessness. And what does he say to him in verse 8? Get up. Take up your bed and walk. Get up. Walk. Stop bedding down. And we know there's a multitude around this pool. Jesus doesn't heal everyone around that pool. And we don't know exactly why he heals this guy. But we do know there are people around us that don't get physically healed. We do know some that do. We know that not every circumstance gets changed. But we also know, if you read scripture, God doesn't promise that your physical circumstances will be changed. Sometimes they are. But he doesn't promise it. But God does promise a different healing. He does promise healing. He does promise freedom. But the problem is, you and I think our circumstance, our moments, that's our oppressor. And Jesus is like, man, I don't think you understand what you need to be healed from. I don't think you understand who or what your oppressor is. Do you and I have actually the eyes to see it? Jesus knows that sin is our ailment. He knows that outside sin is a problem for us, but he says, like, he goes after it. It's like, it's in you. It's in every one of you. Your heart is broken. This is why Jesus enters into the world, to begin to reveal what is our ailment, what is our oppressor. This is why Jesus dies for us. He dies for us so he can set us free from sin and death, our oppressors. Romans 6, 20-23 explains it this way. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. I love that saying. Right, so, hey, when you were a sinner, when you were a slave to sinner, there's nothing you can do but sin. Look it, you were freed from being righteous. You didn't have to worry about it because you couldn't do it because you were a slave to sin. And but what fruit were you getting at that time for the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Like, so look at when you were a slave to sin, what was the fruit of that life? What did you get? What did you earn? What did it come out of that life? Guess is what he says, Paul says. Look at what comes out of that life is death. That's the fruit. That's the end game. 
And he goes on to say, for the end of those things is death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Look at, he's just using this imagery, like, look, you were a slave to sin, and now you are a slave to God. And the difference is, in this imagery he's using, is the fruit that actually when you are a slave to God, the fruit is sanctification. The fruit is actually something begins to change your heart. The fruit is, you know, is a changed heart. We, we sang a song. What, are you, what, is God, what is God famous for, right? The, I don't even know what the lyrics said in that song, right? The dry bones, the uh, lion's den, right? Yeah, he might be famous for that, but those are very rare moments. You know what he's really famous for? And he does over and over again? He takes dead hearts. Dead wills, dead desires, and he gives living, free hearts that are set on him. This is what he does. This is the ordinary act of God over and over again, setting us free from the oppressor. This is what he's famous for. And we get sanctification, and the fruit of it is eternal life. And then he goes and just says it in a different way in one verse, for the wages of sin is death. What you earn from this way of life is death, but the free gift of God, what God gives to you freely, you don't earn it, you don't do it, is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You and I, like the Israelites, are in the wilderness in this world. This world is a wilderness that is barren. And it may be hard to see and experience the healing at times in this world. It may be hard to experience the freedom from our oppressors in this world. But it is easy to grumble. It is easy to cling on to the oppressors in our world. It is easy to cling on to the way of sin. Because it's comfortable for us. It's because it's what we know. It's easy to cling on the old way. It's easier to to bed down into our circumstance and bed down into our moment and bed down into our sin. But the thing is, Jesus is not okay with that. He is not okay with that mentality in us to, to, to be okay with that. He's not okay with where we're at. This is why he comes. He's come to set us free. And he says to not just this invalid, but to all of us, get up and walk in the freedom that I have paid for you. Get up and walk in the healing that I have provided today for you. It may not be the healing that you thought you wanted, but it's the healing you need. You see, for the invalid, the pool wasn't the hope. He thought the pool was the hope. If I just get in the pool, and there Jesus was standing before him. He was the hope. He was the healer, not the pool. And not just a healer of physical ailments, but he is the healer of all the ailments of sin and death, the real oppressors. Our physical healing isn't our hope. I want you to understand that clearly because every one of us, unless Jesus comes back, are going to get old, 
Our body is going to fail us, and we're going to die. Physical healing isn't the promise. The promise is spiritual healing. A new heart, new desires, new wills. Our promise is that we will live forever. That there is a new body. Our changed circumstances isn't our hope. Our hope is in the cross. Our hope is that the God that is present with us all the time, our hope is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus who is the El Roy. The El Roy is, is, is the God that sees. The God that sees. You see, the good news for the invalid wasn't the physical healing. The good news started before Jesus said, get up and walk to the invalid. The good news for you and I starts before Jesus begins to change our hearts. The good news, I want you to hear it clearly in this passage, is in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time. That's the good news. That Jesus saw him and he knew him. This is, this is a divine supernatural scene. Jesus saw this one invalid in all the multitude. Why would he pick this one out? To illustrate to us that he sees in the midst of all the noise of the world. He sees. He saw and he knew. He knew the ailment. He knew the length. He never met this man. But he saw and he knew. This is divine perfect knowledge of God. Jesus sees and he knows you. Hear that clearly. Wherever you're at right now, whatever moment that you are stuck in, Jesus sees you and he knows you. You may think, Mike, no one understands me. No one gets me. No one knows my thought. Jesus does. He sees you and he knows you. He's right in front of you. You are not beyond his purview. You are not out of his sight. You are not out of his mind ever. He sees you and he knows you. I don't know if you know the, remember the story of Hagar. Hagar was the concubine of Abraham that uh, Sarah gave to Abraham way back in Genesis 16. And because uh, Abraham and Sarah were trying, trying to fulfill the God, promise that God had given them. And so they try all different ways. And remember, the, Sarah and Abraham are old, and God promises them a child. And like, that is not happening. Well, let's this uh, Hagar, this concubine, we'll give him. And, and Hagar has a child, Ishmael. And once uh, Sarah gives uh, this child and, and, and Hagar has a child, then Sarah gets up jealous and upset because Abraham was probably fond of this child. And God and she abuses, Sarah abuses Hagar, and Hagar flees into the wilderness. But God found her in the wilderness. And God tells her, God tells her, go back to your circumstance. Go back to your moment. I have a promise and I have a blessing for you. And then in Genesis 16 to 13, Hagar does what no one else in Scripture does. She names God. She gives God a name. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. 
For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Like, she understands, like, man, I was out in the wilderness. I was alone. I was desperate. I was going to die. And you saw me. You saw my circumstances. You saw my suffering. You saw me. Then later in the story of Hagar, right, as they grow a little bit older, and now uh, Isaac has been born, and so Sarah and Abraham throw a feast for Isaac, and Sarah demands, still upset, get Ishmael, get out, that he's taken the attention away, and so demands that Abraham get rid of Hagar and Ishmael, and so Abraham obeys. God actually tells Abraham to do this as well. And then all, all, all Hagar does is take Ishmael and a few uh, items of provision and goes out into the wilderness and then days have gone by and Ishmael is about to die. A mother watching her child die because the circumstances are so dire. And so she puts him under a tree to let him die and, and backs away and, and watches her son about to die. And Genesis 21, 16 through 18 says, Then she went up and sat down opposite a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. Not very far from me. For she said, Let me not look at the death of my child, or the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. The angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Now, this is kind of like the same question he says to the invalid, right? God says, do you want to be healed? Oh, Hagar, what troubles you? Is something bothering you right now? You got got an issue going on? And he says, fear not. Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. And what does he say? Up. Lift up the boy. And hold fast with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. It's almost the same thing as he says to the invalid. Get up! Get up! Rise! God sees you. God saw Ishmael. God saw Hagar. God sees you. And God knows you. God hears you. He knows the pain in your life. He knows the pain that you're wailing to him, and he knows the actual pain, whether they coincide or not. He knows what is oppressing you. You are not outside God's healing. Hear that clearly. You are not outside God's healing ever. You are not outside of God's plan ever. You are not outside of God's freedom, ever. Whether you've been oppressed for 500 plus years, you are not outside of his freedom, his healing, or plan. Psalm 33, 13 through 15 says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits on the throne, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all of their deed. God sees. God knows. We are his creation. We are his children. 
and goes on in verse 18 through 19 of Psalm 33. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in the famine. Now, that's a great description of where we need, right? That we are children that are in the wilderness and God sees us and all we're asking, God, keep us alive in this world that gives us no satisfaction, that gives us no nourishment. Keep us alive. And that's the promise God gives us. Not that you will physically be alive in this world, but that you will live forever because he's the nourishment. Jesus asks Do you want to be healed? This question is not in jest. This is a question that is pulling us out of our spiritual blindness. This is a question that allows us to have sight beyond our circumstance and see what our healing and freedom really is. Do you want to be healed? It's a question for lost people that are looking for an answer that is standing right in front of them. Do you want to be healed? Brothers and sisters, see Jesus right in front of you because he sees and he knows and he hears you. Psalm 27, 13 through 14. The psalmist says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your hearts take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now, that's not an easy word to hear. But this is the steadfastness hope in which Psalm 33 is talking about. In the midst of all the pain, in the midst of all the harm and sin and death in the wilderness, he teaches the Israelites to wait for me. Wait for my plan. I am good. I see you. I know you. I know what's oppressing you. He says that to you right where you're at today. He knows. He knows your circumstances. He knows your physical pain. He knows your oppressor. Jesus has healed you. I said that in the past tense. Jesus has healed you. Jesus has freed you. Stop looking for the freedom. Stop looking for the healing. It's already been done. Look upon the goodness of Jesus. Be strong in the wilderness. It is tough to live in the wilderness, it is not easy. Wait for the fruit that he promises. Wait for the fruit of the healing that already has been accomplished in you and I. Wait for the freedom that has already been accomplished for you and I as we roam in the wilderness of this world. Will you wait for that fruit? You have been healed. We have been healed. And we have been set free. Be strong and wait for that fruit. He sees you. He knows you and he is with us. Amen? Let us pray. Gracious Father,
I am overwhelmed by your goodness and your sweetness and your ever-present steadfastness. Lord, I'm thankful that you are a God that knows my heart, that knows my brokenness, that knows my oppressor. Lord, move me from being comfortable in that. Help me begin to, to live in that fruit of the sanctification and move away from it and live in the freedom that you've already given us, you've already given me. I pray this for all of us, Lord. Help us to see the beginnings of the fruit grow in our lives. And let us not hunker down in sin, but let us hunker down with you, Lord. Let us bed down with you. Let us be with you as you are ever-present with us. Help us to live in the healing and the freedom that you have provided every day in this world. I give you thanks, Lord, that this is a work that you're doing in us and for us. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.